Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Welcome to the Carter Center. Second conversation this year. It's awfully, awfully nice to see you on such a terrible rainy evening. Wonderful turnout. I want to welcome particularly the students that have come to join us this evening and some of our donors are here and of course our friends from the Atlanta area. Would you please begin by being sure your cell phones are turned off for the sake of your neighbors. Uh, I'm going to give a few words of introduction. I'm John Stremlaw, the Vice President of the Peace Programs. And then I'm going to ask um, our conversationalists come join me here on the stage. Then we'll have questions and answers for maybe the last 45 minutes or so. It is being broadcast live, webcast, and you can always check out and have comments if you want to think about it after this meeting on our blog at www.cartercenter.org. So I urge you to visit the Carter Center blog often. If there are questions about elections are not enough and how do we do elections, I know Jay Hakes is here, the head of our museum, and it's just been renovated, so I hope any of you who haven't been over there will avail yourself of the opportunity. It's a really wonderful way to spend an hour or more. I also want to thank in the back uh, Deborah Hakes from the Public Information Office, who's our peace program public information officer. She's done a great job. Deb, can you wave? And the reason you want her to wave is because after this is over, there's going to be a book signing for Professor Collier outside, and so Deb will lead him out there quickly, and I hope you can spend some time talking to Paul at that stage as well. I'm going to ask Professor Collier to come up here in a few moments. Uh, he's the director of the Center for the Study of African e Economics, as you know, ac African Economies. And there is a small bio statement on Professor Collier and also my colleague David Carroll, the director of the Democracy Program, who manages the elections for the Carter Center. Jennifer McCoy, director of our uh, America's program, will be joining us, and she started her career at the Carter Center doing elections and still does elections, but manages the America's program. Tom Crick, the um, associate director of uh, conflict resolution, will um, also talk about the work we're doing in Liberia. Tom's the manager for that project. So we have a nice group here, and I hope it will be informal and relaxed for all of you, and we'll all be a little wiser when we leave. Uh, elections for the Carter Center take half of the peace program. It's a signature issue. The Carter Center pioneered elections when it was first established, shortly after it was first established in the late 1980s, and we've done 76 of them since then. The question, uh, you know, for what? Uh, if elections aren't enough, what are they for? We, we as voters, I think, ask this all the time. Washington is kind of paralyzed right now, and the country is kind of going through, well, what did we really accomplish in the election of 2008 or 2004, or remember 2000? So the question is a general one, but for, for the Carter Center and for Professor Collier, I think we say elections are enough when elections help to sustain countries that have gone through terrible problems of conflict and maybe to get a peace process underway. And of course, if it can be a gateway for democratic development, that's what we really aspire to. But the Carter Center focuses and President and uh, uh, Professor Collier's work 
focuses on the countries that are in the most duress, the most difficult. We are currently deployed in Sudan, the biggest of African countries, which as you know from the media has gone through 30 years of terrible conflict before the peace agreement, which is fragilely still holding and to which an election is very important. We'll talk about that. The Carter Centers in Ivory Coast and Guinea and West Africa, which are also two conflict-prone countries. Palestine may be on the agenda for this year for us. Venezuela may be on the agenda for us. And that offers another question about when's an election good enough to bring democracy if the leader, in fact, is moving toward more autocratic rule. Even Burma is on the list. Um, President, um, I keep wanting to say President Carter, I should say Professor Collier, forgive me. Uh, Professor Collier uh, poses some very um, uh, interesting questions in his two books. I, I, I'm a great fan of these books, and as I say, they're out there, so let you get familiar with the covers. Um, why some countries stay poor, uh, the bottom billion book is about the poverty problem. The, other book, the more recent one, is why countries are so afflicted by deadly conflicts, and repeatedly so, even when they hold elections, hence the name Wars, Guns, and Votes. Um, I hope that uh, uh, we won't have time to talk about this. President, uh, Professor Collier has a very uh, nice lecture on each of these books, and you can see them if you go to his website, if you Google them or you go to the Center for Africa's uh, Research on African Economies, you can follow um, the argument to its full development because we'll just have a conversation today. But in the case of um, the countries we're looking at, I think both Professor Collier and the Carter Center recognize that we are in a different era. The Cold War is over, major powers at peace. There has been a huge change in the world economically it used to be said that there were five billion poor people and a billion rich people, and today we say, you know, there are five billion people who are moving toward prosperity and a billion that really aren't. Where are the bottom billion countries? If you look at um, a map, Professor Collier has identified about 58 of these, and these are the so-called bottom billion countries which have been in practical po poverty for so long and are conflict-prone. These are the countries where the Carter Center operates, and so the overlay between Professor Collier's work and the Carter Center is really remarkable to all of us and why his work is so important. The reason I throw this slide up is just to give you a little feeling of when we talk about poverty, if the map of the world was represented according to the gross national product of countries, not by their geographic size, this is what it would look like, and you'd hardly see Africa if it wasn't for the South African economy. These are the same countries that are dark red that are the fastest growing population-wise, so this problem is going on for the next generation as well. They are also the countries that are the most unstable. This is a survey that was recently done by the Economic uh, Economist Research Unit and just gives you an indication of where uh, fragile states uh, exist, so the overlay. And yet one of the extraordinary things about this moment in history is that all of these countries, and I use this map a lot, declare themselves to be democracies. Uh, this was a map produced in France to show this sort of avowed democratic inclination on the part of governments almost everywhere. Saudi Arabia doesn't make any pretense. Burma, in fact, is now talking about elections, so maybe taken off. And of course, the Vatican's the Vatican. That's not going to be a democracy. <laughs> but if you look at electoral democracies, the kind that Freedom House talks about as being kind of sustainable democracies, democratic development, you see a very different picture. 
And if you look where the Carter Center, and I'm sorry, this slide didn't translate very well. I thought I'd adjusted for it. The, the little dots are where we have done elections. I better move on. This was something I had to craft rather quickly. The map of Africa, which is the focus of most of our discussion tonight, is divided up into 54 sovereign states, sovereign countries. But if you were to look at the map of Africa according to ethnic groups, Professor Collier likes to point out that Germany back in pre-modern time was 500 or so small tribal groups that through the force of arms and consolidation became a nation. We're not gonna do that today, but this is what Africa would look like if it was divided up according to Yorubas and Igbos and Dinkas and Hausas and however many others. And it's a sobering reminder of what the challenge is for these states because, I think I may have missed the slide here, folks. I didn't miss the title at the top. To be too small to be states, which is to say these economies of these countries typically are about the size of an American city of 50,000 people, if you take the World Bank's uh, 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 reference. And yet they're too big to be nations for the reason I just pointed out, that these have to be aggregated and they're not. So we go in and try to, at the end of a conflict, in the case of Liberia, and I just have a couple more slides here, have the possibility, you try to help the possibility of an election as at least setting a break on the anarchy and the conflict and to start to move the country toward, uh, we hope, sustainable peace and democratic development. But the dilemmas that Professor Collier in his most recent book focuses on most are two structural imperative, uh, two structural impediments. One is the security impediment and in the case of Liberia, or we also operate the Congo, it has to take UN forces to give the people of that country at least some hope that there's going to be safety on the streets and in their schools and in their houses and so they can there about, get about in their life. But we also have to do something about the judicial system and the accountability impediment. Uh, and the accountability issue is what I think joins Professor Collier and the Carter Center so closely in the work that we're doing. We more operationally he, in the more analytic and research sense uh, from his center. And I put this picture up just because Tom Crick will be on the stage in just a moment. And in Liberia, we are sustaining our engagement there to hope that we can have a transition to justice that shows the Carter Center's commitment that elections are not enough. So I end with this last slide from President Obama's visit to Africa last summer where he says, Africa doesn't need strong men, it needs strong institutions. And the conversation that I'd like now for us to begin will discuss elections within the context of the need to sort of move beyond elections to stronger institutions, but how we go about our business along the way and what Professor Collier could add to that. So I'd like my colleagues now to come join me on the stage and we'll start our conversation. Thank you for listening. Yep, just follow along, you'll see your sign. We didn't plan this very well, you can sense the search for the right chair. I am going to go over and get Mike, but I thought in honor of our distinguished guest, if Professor Collier could open the conversation by giving a few thoughts of what he regards as the question on the table, uh, elections are not enough, and then other colleagues can join in. So Professor Collier, if you wouldn't mind beginning and saying a few thoughts on that question. 
Yeah, well, thanks very much. I perhaps I can first say uh, thanks for inviting me to the Carter Center. I've uh, greatly admired your work for a long time, so it's nice to be here. Um, elections are not enough. Um, I think the international community kind of, in the last two decades, fell over itself with enthusiasm for elections. I think coming out of the, the fall of the Soviet Union and those kind of wonderful experience of, uh, of democratization in Eastern Europe. And we thought that was universalizable just with rolling out elections everywhere. But um, um, uh, the, the diagnosis before the fall of the Soviet Union was that the troubled parts of the world were troubled by autocracy and just by holding an election, that was the technology to topple them. And what an election would usher in would then be a legitimate and accountable government. And because the government was a le legitimate and accountable, um, there wouldn't be violent opposition to it, and uh, the government would drive economic progress. So that, that, that was the theory we've sort of uh, been magicked by over the, uh, over the last two decades, the legitimacy and accountability theory. And, uh, and why is it wrong? Um, it's wrong because um, a proper democracy, of course, is much more than just elections. Um, elections are one uh, process which occurs within the context of a democracy, but what is a democracy? It's a set of, of rules, of checks and balances um, on power within which um, electoral contests then, then do indeed achieve legitimacy and accountability of government. Uh, but if you, try and, if you try and just do elections without that um, prerequisite of the, the institutions, the checks and balances on power, what you get is, is sham elections. Elections are events, and so they're pretty easy to hold. The incentive to take part in an election is enormous because it's the route to power. And if indeed, if there are no checks and balances in place, it's the route to absolute power. And so you can hold elections in the most troubled environments on earth. Afghanistan, elections, no trouble. Iraq, elections, no trouble, can do them, right? Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is neither democratic nor a republic. Um, elections, no trouble, right? Um, so, uh, you can hold the event. What's more, much, much more difficult is to put in the institutions of the checks and balances, because checks and balances are not events. They're processes that have to be built, and they only work if they're credible. They only become credible over time. And what's more, they are, if you like, the, the ultimate public goods, checks and balances. Everybody benefits from them. And so, as with any public good, nobody's got an incentive to provide them. The usual solution with public goods, who does the provision of public goods? Well, the government, that's what they're for, to supply public goods. But here's one public good that we can't trust government 
to provide because it's checks and balances on government. And so by definition, the government can't supply the checks and balances on itself. So it's a particularly difficult public good to provide. Once you start with an election in a context where there are no checks and balances, there's actually quite often no going back because what happens is instead of getting a legitimate and accountable government, you get a government that is not recognized within the society as legitimate, but it's recognized internationally as being, having, a, having been anointed by the holy oil of an election, having won an election. And so it thinks it can do what it damn well likes. And so what you're actually doing with the election is not pro pro producing a legitimate government, you're producing a government with total power, which of course in a democracy you don't have. Nor are you producing an accountable government because the governments quite rapidly, presidents, incumbents discovered they could win elections by cheating. And we go through the technology of cheating, I'm sure, as the evening evolves. Um, and so if you win by cheating, you aren't accountable. Um, you can do what you damn well like. And again, as the evening evolves, I'll show that that's just what happens. Thanks very much. to sort of give a little flavor of how we decide which elections to do and which elections not to do and the quality of these events. Sure, uh, I think first maybe it's, it's worth just saying that um, I agree with uh, the, the basic premise that uh, Dr. Collier has, has said. I and we've seen it in our own work on elections. We repeatedly find ourselves going back to countries where we have observed elections once and four or five years later, we're invited again and the country hasn't made significant progress. So I think it's, it's a lesson that's been learned in the, uh, the community of uh, development agencies and uh, non-governmental organizations like the Carter Center that clearly elections are not enough and elections don't necessarily bring democracy. But there's a lot of questions below that, that surface level that, that I know we'll get at and I'll, I'll address your point, John, as well. But I think so, some of the questions really have to do with what kind of an election and who is looking at that election uh, on the basis of what kind of criteria and standards are they assessing that election, and really importantly, what kinds of consequences are there when there's a flawed election, and are those consequences really uh, firmly backed up by the broader international community, and that's some of the things that we um, are trying to, to work on at the Carter Center. We, uh, every year, um, observe elections in roughly three to five countries around the world. We uh, look uh, once or twice a year, take a snapshot of what are the elections that are coming down the road in the calendar, and we ask ourselves which are the, uh, the countries around the world that we think are going to have the most important elections. And important for us means countries that are undergoing a difficult transition, that have not really had uh, a, a democratic history, that are uh, maybe uh, in a transition where there might be an opening for democracy, or where maybe they've had one successful election, but there's a lot of difficulty and the, and the possibility of, of backsliding. So we purposely are looking at what we think are some of the most challenging environments, and then we try to, as early as possible, find out whether or not we will be able to play a constructive role there. If we'll be invited by the, the spectrum of political actors, 
do we think that we will be able to play a role as observers who will have access to the process? And will we, will we be able to speak out publicly about the things that, that we're concerned about? And all of that is, ties back to our view that there has to be consequences for elections that are flawed. There's no purpose in, in observing elections that are gonna be flawed if we can't have any impact on that and try to make the case uh, uh, about uh, assessing the legitimacy of that process. Jennifer, anything to add from the Latin American perspective? And I hope you folks will talk among yourselves. You don't have to have me keep prompting you. Well, I, I think some of the interesting questions raised by both of these first comments are, you know, that I agree it's sort of um, commonly accepted now that elections are necessary for democracy, but not sufficient. And so that's one of the things we try to look at um, as well. But I think one of the interesting questions is, can elections actually be dangerous in some circumstances? And I yeah. think that's really what you're getting at yeah. in your book, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's what we want to be cautious about. Because generally, we think about elections as being um, contributing to not only democracy, but, but generally to uh, freedoms for people and to unifying a country and providing a legitimate government, which they do if they're good elections because you have to have certain freedoms in place. And even in countries that have been divided and coming out of a civil war or are just polarized, um, divided ideologically, uh, distracted by uh, past war or security issues, it can unite a population to focus on an election, mm -hmm. just like recently in Iraq. Um, but sometimes that's just a momentary distraction. And then those underlying divisions come out immediately after the election again. And if you don't have the institutions, and even more importantly, what I really liked out of your book, Paul, the point that underlying the institutions, the very basic need is a national identity to construct a national identity. If that doesn't exist, if countries and societies are essentially divided, then the inherently divisive nature of an election, because it is us versus them in terms of competition, um, will not overcome that lack of a, of a uh, united identity, a national identity. So I think those are some of the concerns and then to think about. So under what conditions could an election actually be dangerous, and we shouldn't hold them. You know, a couple I can think of. One is if, if it's coming out of a civil war or a conflictual situation, and the security arrangements are not sufficiently in place. Mm -hmm. If one of the uh, parties, the losing party in a civil conflict still has arms, then they can certainly take back up arms. We saw that in Angola, for example. Mm -hmm. um, if the election is viewed as an exit strategy by the international community, uh, to withdraw from its aid and simply say, okay, now the government's in place and we'll leave, that can be very dangerous. And so there are, these are some of the things I think we need to be thinking about and how to, how to overcome uh, those as well. Yeah. I mean, you just reminded me, um, where you get um, <coughs> ethnic polarization, the, the voting tends to be just driven by ethnic identity. Um, I just, we did survey work during the, the, the Kenyan elections, pretty disastrous elections as it turned out, um, but we found the following really quite interesting pattern that, um, because Kibaki, the, 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 the incumbent president, had, hadn't, been a, hadn't been a bad president. I mean, the, the, the economy had actually grown for the first time for a long time, and, and quite a lot of people kind of recognized that. So if you asked, 
um, uh, people, you know, has, has, has President Kabaki done a, done a reasonable job? He got, even amongst the, uh, the Luo, the, 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 the opposition party, uh, even amongst the Luo, he got relatively high approval ratings. Um, and then we look to say, um, of, the, of those Luo who rate him as having done a pretty, pretty decent job, what proportion then uh, voted for him? 4%. So um, basically, um, and, and, sim and we, we asked a similar question of the, the of course, you know, some people thought Kaki had done a bad job, including some Kikuyu. So what proportion of the Kikuyu who thought he did a bad job were prepared to vote for Odinga? Same, negligible, right? Uh, and so while, whilst you're imprisoned in that structure of people just voting on identity, uh, of course you don't discipline governments to, to improve national level performance. What's the incentive for Kibaki to deliver policies that benefit everybody if the only people who are going to vote for him uh, are the people from the same ethnic group as himself? You know? so, so, um, so democracy in those circumstances, far from disciplining a government to deliver good national policies, actually encourages it just to play the, the identity card. Can I just make a comment? Uh, on, um, I think one, one of the important factors that relates to the, the ethnicity issue in, in elections is the electoral system. And I think not nearly enough thought is given to ensuring that before elections, there's an electoral system in place that will really allow for different ethnic groups to have some stake in power. Mm -hmm. And short of that, if there's an election that is this winner take all, then the stakes really do become a lot, a lot more critical and the chances of violence, I think, are much higher. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I think post-conflict, it's kind of blindingly obvious that what's got to happen post-conflict is a sharing of power. Mm -hmm. And any election which says, well, actually, your group didn't get enough votes, um, either legitimately or illegitimately, you've not got enough votes to be part of power, you're gonna be excluded, then that's a bad thing. Any, any process which leads to exclusion, including elections, mm -hmm. is, is just dysfunctional in post-conflict context. Tom, uh, mm -hmm. Liberia is such an interesting case and it's such an important <coughs> one for Americans that you might sort of recall our involvement then it descended to civil war and now we're going another round with more hope, I hope. Yeah, well, um, I mean, Liberia is, uh, is very close to the extreme of a post-conflict state. I mean, the war that uh, took place there was uh, you know, massively uh, destructive. And, uh, you know, our first engagement there was uh, efforts by President Carter to uh, build uh, peace between, uh, between the warring factions. And that actually led to uh, an election that may be a... Uh, um, uh, you know, example of what you, you've been describing in the, the early days of, of trying to use elections to, uh, uh, as a tool for, for ending conflict. There was a peace agreement in uh, 1996 that led to very quick uh, elections in 1997 with very limited um, disarmament, demobilization, or any restructuring of the state. And this was with the purpose of, uh, of achieving a consensus between the conflicting parties as to how to move forward 
but also the external powers who had been sort of peacekeeping, in that case the Nigerians, finally concluded, well, this war's not going to end unless we uh, you know, acknowledge the, the strength of uh, Charles Taylor, the leading rebel group, um, allow an election, and then have the people you know, make their choice and sort of legitimize the, uh, the, the victor. Um, so what happened was uh, the international community supported any kind of peace, uh, essentially. It supported the elections. The, the Carter Center was there along with the Europeans and others um, monitoring that process, which went technically uh, quite well. And uh, the Liberian population overwhelmingly voted in their own interests, which was to prevent the war from recurring, which meant that they voted for, for Charles Taylor. His, uh, well, one of the slogans heard there was famously, you know, he killed my ma, he killed my pa, we vote for him. Um, so this was in some senses legitimizing, um, but whether it meant that he was uh, legitimate um, and whether it was a, you know, a good use of, uh, of voting, I'm not sure that anybody was claiming that we, uh, democracy was being achieved. So in that sense, it may be more of a post-conflict tool in that case than... Uh, than some of its, uh, than some subsequent elections. Um, but war did uh, restart, uh, and the peace agreement in 2003 led to a longer transition this time, two years for electoral systems to be developed and for the, uh, uh, the victors in the war to sort of manage the, uh, the economy. Uh, in some senses, uh, you'll reap the benefits of their, uh, of their, uh, their agreement. Uh, and then in 2005, uh, an election was held with international support, and, and I think importantly, without an incumbent. Uh, and in the second round, uh, President uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was elected in what they called uh, sort of Liberia's first true um, election. Uh, and basically, the, the results were, were, were accepted um, by, by all parties. Uh, and the sort of rebuilding process has, has now, uh, now begun. Um, you know, for the Carter Center, we, we've, uh, uh, this, this is an example of where we've stayed and tried to focus on uh, institution building, uh, developing uh, the, uh, the necessary infrastructure for uh, democracy to, to develop roots in a society where the, uh, the state has not been uh, historically strong in, in any way that we would understand it. And so our work is focused on um, capacity building for state and non-state institutions, primarily in the area of uh, rule of law, uh, educating people on their rights, providing uh, legal services, uh, providing training for, for magistrates, principally focusing on rural areas where a lot of the discontent came from and a lot of the conflict uh, came from, trying to give the people there at least the, uh, the tools to uh, defend their own rights as the, uh, the state nationally tries to build its, uh, uh, build its own capacity. Uh, there'll be elections again next year. Already the politics has, has begun and we'll see whether you know, the incumbent uh, plays by the rules or, or uses its uh, uh, you know, cons uh, large uh, possible advantage to to its own uh, to its own interests. But we, you know, we're 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 hopeful there that despite uh, many many problems, um, you know, the peace is holding and 
uh, you know, things will hold together again with the UN's support. They're, they're still there and they're still providing the security guarantee. America's going to have to digest the experiences in Iraq and the experience in Afghanistan at a time when it seems, I think, to many of us that the weak states um, of the world will be a preoccupation of the major donors, the fragility and then the legitimacy of becoming involved. Uh, I've been surprised, David, by how much there is now a consensus among uh, various countries concerned about, say, the plight of African failed states, the weak links in our global order, the places that produce the terrorists or the diseases or whatever, that it is a legitimate function to go in and observe, that the more you can do so in partnership with others, the stronger it is. Could you share uh, with the audience a little bit how this has evolved in terms of a community uh, of, of actors? Because I think then Paul might be able to uh, grapple a little bit with this. Are, are, are we as an international community giving through this mechanism more legitimacy to the restraint and checks and, uh, such as they are on, on the abuse of power? Yeah, I think a couple of quick comments. Um, Paul's comments about the, the end of the Cold War really triggering a wave of democratization and elections. That's really when the Carter Center started working on elections. And that's when we've seen the dramatic expansion of uh, elections uh, around the developing world and observed elections. And we've also seen over the last 15 or 20 years uh, a pretty strong rise in the number of groups that have been observing elections. So all of that put together, there, there has been now a, a much more strongly developed norm that to gain legitimacy, countries have to hold democratic elections. And it's important for observers to be there to have some uh, impartial assessment of the quality of that process. What's happened, though, uh, is that there have been, as more organizations have gotten involved, there has been uh, an awareness that we've not necessarily all been using the same kind of criteria. And the work that we've been doing at the Carter Center over the last several years is trying to get us back on track to ensure that we're, there is some clear consensus and understanding among observer groups. And the work that we're doing is to try to root the criteria that we use when assessing elections in a series of obligations from public international law documents that are broadly known publicly and that countries have voluntarily endorsed. And to have that be a, a set of documents around which we can have a consensus approach and therefore, there can be more consistency in our work as observers, and that then, I, can, I hope, can uh, allow us to be much more effective in uh, criticizing a bad election and holding countries accountable when there are problems in their elections. Yeah, I, um, one, of the, one of the most enjoyable bits of my books to write um, was, was the first chapter of Wars, Guns, and Votes, where I, I put myself in the position of a, an aging old autocrat who um, is persuaded that he'd better hold an election. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the fashion, um, uh, the donors kind of insisting on it, and all his, all his neighbors, you know, are doing it. the peer group's doing it, so he thinks he'd better do it. And then he starts, he wakes up in the middle of the night and thinks, but how am I going to win it? <laughs> um, and he, he gets out his gold pen and he makes a list. And, uh, and strategy number one is um, be a good government. Right? Try and deliver good government to people. And, uh, and he thinks about that, 
And he thinks, oh no, is there anything else? Right? Um, um, and, uh, and it's that anything else. He, he finally, he goes back to sleep uh, an untroubled man as he's worked through the list of what he can do. Um, and, and that list of what he can do is the list of what we need to guard against, basically. Um, so uh, one of the strategies is um, uh, make sure that your opponents can't stand in the election. So you limit the field. Um, and uh, um, the, the, the nicest example I have of that I think constitutionally the most interesting uh, was, was what was, was the strategy uh, that uh, President Abacha of Nigeria came up with, if you, if you remember. Um, sadly, um, he died before it could be implemented, but otherwise it would have been a constitutional innovation because his strategy was he, he set up five um, different political parties to contest the election. So, Fair enough, properly contested election. Five different parties all contesting the presidential election, each of which happened to choose him as its presidential candidate. So this was, this was multi-party dictatorship, um, which is, which is it's a very you know, it's a rare animal. Um, um, so, so that's one strategy, you limit the field. Um, and we've seen that uh, in spades in, in Cote d'Ivoire, where the, uh, there are two big ca candidates, either of whom might win an election, neither of whom have been allowed to stand for, you know, for the last decade, basically. Um, so that's one thing, is, 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 is def protection against illegitimately limiting the field. Um, and then the, the big three tactics during an election, I think of as... Uh, as, as, uh, as you can bribe voters. You know, the problem with bribing voters, the president thinks, is you just can't trust people these days. You know, you, they take your money and sometimes they still don't vote for you. Now, here technology's on his side um, because um, mobile phones, what, what's happening in quite a lot of countries now is you only get your money once you come up with a photograph showing your ballot paper in the, uh, in the booth, right? Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this is not just Africa, incidentally. This is Turkey, you know, there's lots of places. So bribery technology is on the side of the, of the president. Uh, the, alter, the, the radical, alter, extreme opposite end from bribery, where you try and entice voters to vote for you, uh, is threaten them. Right? And we, we just heard a story of, 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 of mass threatening. Right? I mean, mass intimidation was, was Liberia, Charles Taylor. His, what, what was his election slogan? Not, um, vote for me, I'll run a good government. Not even, vote for me, I'll pay you. It was, vote for me or I'll kill you. Right? Like I did your parents. You know? And it worked. Right? In, in t voter intimidation works. Um, so that's, that's, an, that's a, and, that, and then the, the, the strategy which finally allows the president to go to sleep with an untroubled night is, is, uh, is, is to miscount the votes, right? Um, and, uh, and boy, have we seen that, right? 
Um, so the, um, I mean, I've learned today that the Carter Center typically likes to go in well before an election, like, like a year before an election or something. And, and I think that's right because some of these strategies occur on the day, but some of them are built up uh, over a long, long period. Like the exclusion of candidates is not something you do on the day, it's something you do way back. David and Paul is, is really, you know, there's a line that's very blurry about what is acceptable in all of this leading up, because really what we're facing, particularly in Latin America, that's gone beyond, you know, they're not sealing the votes on the day anymore. I mean, that's pretty much done for, except the, the new, you know, the cell phone picture of the, in the voting booth, that, that could be new. But, um, but it's how level is the playing field leading up to it? And how level, what is acceptable? in terms of campaign finance, in terms of access to the media. I mean, we saw in, in Peru in, in 2000 was the absolute worst election in terms of that time it wasn't bribing the voters, it was bribing the media to put in terrible uh, stories, made up stories devised by the government against all the opponents, to denigrate the opponents, and to force the media to not accept the ads of the legitimate opposition. So it was you know, clear, um, it wasn't stealing the election by the votes, but it was preventing the candidates from giving their, their message. And that was the one election that the Carter Center and our partner organization at the time, NDI, said ahead of time in Latin America, this is so unacceptable, we're not even going to observe on the day of the election. It's already been stolen. So that's clear. But otherwise, if it's simply inequity of resources, uh, possibly using state resources, but difficult to prove, or difficult to prove how much, but it's obvious when there are posters on government buildings, when there are buses you know, bringing people in to vote by the government, you know, how much of that is acceptable? That's, that's the difficulty. And um, so David's working on these election standards. Um, you know, is it's it clear? Is the, is the line clear there? No. I mean, uh, at one end of the spectrum, it comes pretty obvious when there's really dramatic abuse of state resources and complete control of the media and prevention of uh, access to the media uh, for other parties. But no, there's definitely a gray area where it then becomes a matter of judgment and you're looking at a whole spectrum of other factors and it's, there's not a, a very simple scorecard to add up all the scores to say that's an 82 passing grade of an election. It's, it's not that easy. My friend Ngozi Nkandjiwewiala, when she was finance minister of Nigeria, when she left that job, she, she told me, I concluded that until campaign finance is, is, is brought under control, um, forget competitive politics in, in Nigeria. And now, it may be that it's not only in Nigeria where campaign finance is a, is well, a, is a, a really problem. Well, it's a hot issue here, Paul. <laughs> um, but, but the... It, it, it's kind of grotesque that in, the, in extraordinarily poor countries, um, truly massive amounts of money are spent um, trying to win, win seats. And, uh, and one thing that tells you is, is how valuable um, power is, you know, how valuable it is to be a, a senator or a governor that people are willing to invest huge amounts of money relative to national income. Um, in, in getting to power. And then it is indeed an investment which they recoup, and we know how they recoup it. So there's a, there's a clear link between um, the, the nefarious uh, expenditures during elections 
uh, and the looting of the public uh, subsequently. Paul raises some very important questions and I hope you might join in participating in this conversation. There are microphones up there if you would start. We'll talk for a couple more minutes between ourselves, but there are microphones here. If anyone would like to get up and ask a question, please uh, avail yourself of that chance and we would welcome that. Um, I, I think I can't resist uh, uh, Paul in saying that for all of the difficulties and the challenges that we face in elections, what David was talking about earlier in terms of getting in earlier and using standards and working with others gives you at least the comfort to know that, um, you know, my mother used to say, uh, right, outright evil are really, really terrible people, but hypocrites at least know what they should be doing. <laughs> and, and in this world of ours today, most governments, as that blue map showed you, that pronounce themselves as democracies, know what they sort of are aspiring to. In a global information age and in a time when it's now increasingly acceptable to be involved in people's politics, whether it's our politics with people looking around and trying to lobby Washington or um, our being asked to be observers, we only go where we're invited. But that openness is, is a source of hope because accountability at least is being built up now at multiple levels, the grassroots and then also internationally. And that interplay may not quite be the kind of course of history that you've written about so eloquently with regard to the development of democracy in Western Europe. It'll be a different kind of pathway, but it is a pathway that's open, I think. And, and, and the Carter Center is trying to open that pathway. So um, I don't see anyone jumping out of their chairs to ask any question. Ah, there's someone in the back. Whilst um, you're getting to the microphone, let me, let me say- Yes, please. If we can, if where we, where we can do clean elections, they do actually work in producing and accountable governments. Um, some of my latest research, I've looked to see whether elections actually discipline governments to improving economic policy in developing countries. And, and we find that they do. That, that, that um, elections produce a, a sort of policy cycle. The year before elections, policies tend to fall apart a bit. As you, but, um, but overall, policy gets better um, when you're faced with frequent elections. And the exception is um, where the elections uh, are not cleanly conducted. There, at best, there's no effect on policy. So the, the battle for clean elections is the battle to win. Can we turn to the audience unless anyone has anything? Please. Good evening. Good evening. Good e Am I on? Can yes, you hear you me? are. Okay. Good evening. This has been a very interesting discussion and I don't know where to begin. Um, has the Carter Center considered observing US elections, especially with the Supreme Court recent ruling of the Supreme Court and the corrupting factor of money? Everything you've said, I could easily apply it here. I mean, we are not a small African nation, therefore we can do more damage, and our elections seem to be getting worse and worse. So, uh, I guess that's to me. Uh, fortunately, I, I, uh, this is not a question I've not heard before. Sure. As, as a matter of fact, it's probably the most frequently asked question uh, in my area of the Carter Center. Uh, the short answer is, is that we direct our, our attention overseas, that there's a lot of different avenues for people inside the United States to pursue to complain about the quality of our elections here to try to have impact on the process. And what we do is concentrate in other parts of the world. 
Yeah, I, 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 I don't do America, but, but let, let me say this, that, um, um, that, that I think that I'd be, care, I'd be wary of, um, of asserting equivalence, right? Um, obviously, um, for any, certainly any outsider's view, there are deficiencies in, in the, the, the American electoral process, you know, not least in campaign finance. Um, uh, but um, if you think your electoral process is bad, uh, you know, look at some of these others. I mean, um, you know. Uh, well, we seem to be trying to race to that. Well, level. You, 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 yeah, but uh, you know, the, the, you, Paul, if, I if you, 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 you know, that, that, um, uh, if, if your incumbents really put their mind to it, um, boy, they've got a lot to learn in how to steal an election from others, right? Um, uh, so um, the, uh, so the, the, the statements of equivalence I would resist, right? Statements that you've got problems, um, it's not on my business, but from an outsider's perspective, yeah. But, but the point there, I think, that we should point out, John, is that every, every country is improvable. Every democracy is, is improvable. And in this case, what was surprising, I think, for the United States and for American citizens is that the trust and the fact that we as citizens took for granted our electoral process for a long time until some technical problems and snags you know, became more visible, and then we started losing confidence and losing trust there. And when you lose trust, that's when you start looking for outsiders or election observers. And that's exactly what we do as international observers in other countries. We are providing that accountability you spoke of, Paul, that the, the missing checks and balances, the missing accountability is provided in those cases by international observers. But they're invited in and they're viewed as, as impartial. And to add to David's answer to your question, I would also point out that in the United States, the Carter Center um, has, has viewed since its beginning that with a former president as the head of the Carter Center representing one party, mm -hmm. that it wouldn't be appropriate, uh, wouldn't necessarily be seen as an, as an impartial organization to observe elections uh, within the United States. And that's another consideration. I would hope that you'd visit our website periodically. We, we, we give downloads and blogs on elections we do. And the more you learn about how other countries operate, I, I did the Ghana election as an observer and came back and did poll watching here in Atlanta and realized that the Ghanaians were doing a lot better job in systematically managing their polling process than we were doing here. Uh, we are a federal republic, and so we have 50 different uh, election management bodies for each of our states, whereas most countries have a national electoral management body. We Americans can learn an awful lot by getting engaged externally. And so if the Carter Center is a window on the world, I hope you'll avail yourself of it. Now, I hope this next question is as interesting as the last one. <laughs> Thank you very much, and good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Christine Matovu. I come from Uganda. I'm currently living in Tanzania. I just wanted to, to assert, yes, elections are not enough. And I want to acknowledge the work that the Carter Center is doing and many others. But I want to say that um, it's not enough even if you go in just a year before. I think you need to look at the windows of opportunity and go in much, much earlier. If, for example, you've helped a government to hold an election, Immediately after that government has been elected into power, 
I think the process should begin to prepare the country for the next election. And I think that preparation should also include preparing the president to contemplate a situation when he's out of power so that he doesn't get used to the fact that he's always in power. And I want to say that for the president, he should be prepared like a candidate who is going to do an exam. I want to equate the elections to an exam period. You prepare for a long time, and each, each exam comes, becomes harder. So the first election you might win easily, the next one will be harder. But you prepare the president, prepare the people, so that they know what they want to vote for. Thank you. Thank you. Anything on Liberia, Tom? Otherwise, we'll take another question. But you're, you're, you've stayed in Liberia for a, 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 no, a no, commitment no, no. to the transition. That's fine. Okay. Good evening. My name is Joshua Magania. I recall during the the Cold War area, we we had leaders who were trying to emerge to, you know, take off the, the affair of Africa. And what we, we, were, we have been getting from the West was election, election, election. Today, the professor is saying election is not enough. How do we trust you guys? <laughs> because Kwame Nkrumah, if he were to have been left alone, the situation in Africa won't be like this. If Lumumba were to have been left alone, the situation in Africa would not be like this. Those were the key leaders who were emerging. But what happened? Oh, they are not listening to us. They are listening to the communist countries. They get rid of, it, get rid of <coughs> them. Now you guys are in bed with the communist countries. They are now saving you economically. You are in the planet, whatever, the moon with them, enjoy all the goodies. And now you turn around and say, election in Africa is not for, how can we trust you guys? Thank you. No, I don't agree with that, I think that's sad. Um, it's a failure to recognize that in all these societies, there are internal struggles, internal struggles between brave people struggling for change and crooks opposing change. Um, our role as outsiders is a pretty modest role. Um, but typically, the brave people struggling for change are losing because they don't have the money and they don't have the guns that the crooks have. Our role is to try and level the playing field somewhat. Strength, reform will, change will come from within. But these are internal struggles that are usually being lost. And our role is to help uh, the, 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 the brave people struggling for change to win more of their battles. And I think diagnoses which say, oh, all the problems are external, we're all good guys, it's nothing to do with us, it's all, it's all, all our problems are inflicted from outside, is, is just a, a fundamental misreading of the last half century and, uh, and just, a, just a failure to face reality. It's a comfortable fiction. <clears throat> Although perhaps that's not to say that some external interventions have, have not uh, had <coughs> significant negative impacts of course. also. Of course, um, of course. I'm not an apologist, right? Mm -hmm. it's, 
But, but, but it's, it's, it's vital to face the reality of internal struggles in order to win them. Mm -hmm. Rebellion, please. Um, I agree with the panelists that uh, elections uh, cannot be considered a cure-all uh, for problems of democracy. But I, I beg to differ with uh, Paul that unless checks and balances are in place, an election can serve only to perpetuate an incumbent's uh, uh, misrule. Um, I have in mind several examples from the last 10 years uh, in the context where I've worked on elections uh, previously. Uh, one is the 2000 election in uh, what was then Yugoslavia, what is now two different countries, two separate countries, Serbia and Montenegro. Uh, checks and balances were not in place in Yugoslavia then. Uh, judiciary was not functioning. The legislation, legislative power was in shambles. Uh, Milosevic basically ruled the country uh, single-handedly. Yet, and the elections were fraudulent, blatantly fraudulent. And that fact alone, the fraudulent nature of the elections and the blatant nature of the elections opened up the floodgates of popular discontent and uh, a massive nonviolent movement to reverse what, what happened in that election, which was confirming Milosevic's uh, ruling power. And within a few weeks, two, three weeks, period, the, 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 force, the, the massive forces of the population were so strong that the elections were reversed, Milosevic could not convince the security forces to turn their guns against the masses of uh, uh, the people. And new elections were held in which the democratic forces were the victors. So these examples and many other examples I can uh, cite, Ukraine, Georgia, and others, where uh, even Kyrgyzstan didn't turn out well at the end of the day, but nonetheless it was a change uh, based on fraudulent elections which opened, up the, which opened up the floodgates to popular discontent and then change, re, despite the fact that there were no checks and balances uh, in place. So the lesson that I learned from this is that even where there are no, no checks and balances, an electoral process can open up uh, 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 avenues for change that are not foreseen in the constitutional process, but nonetheless produce the change. So I wouldn't poo-poo uh, elections uh, in situations where checks and balances are not in place. Thank you. I think there's, there's something in what you say, but um, I also think we've been over-inclined to generalize from uh, Eastern European experience. Um, there, are, um, there are three distinctive features of Eastern European experience, which mean that it's unlikely to generalize. Right? Um, one was that a lot of Eastern Europe had an earlier history of democracy. Right? And, and then Soviet Union, come, you, become, you become colonies of an empire, and then you, you liberate it, and then, then you, you can go back to, to the practices of democracy. Uh, the second feature is that you were, the whole of Eastern Europe was middle income, middle income to upper middle income, and that helps. Um, 
But the third thing, which I think is probably the most powerful, is that for a lot of Eastern Europe, um, there was Western Europe sitting there, not just as a model, but Western Europe inviting Eastern Europe in to the club of the European community, subject to membership rules. And the most fundamental membership rule of the European community was functioning democracy. There's, there's about 10,000 pages of what's called the acquis communautaire, which is the rule book that you have to follow in order to get in. Um, uh, but uh, the top of the list is, 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 is democratic practices. Um, and that, uh, that condition and, the, and the, the enormous attractiveness of gaining entry to the European community first worked in the 1970s to stabilize Southern Europe. We now forget that Southern Europe in the 1970s was, was really, Greece was a military dictatorship, Spain was a military dictatorship, Portugal was a military dictatorship. They all solved their military dictatorship and coup problems by entry into the European community, stabilized them. And then in the 1990s, the same thing happened again with the prospect of membership of the European community for Eastern Europe. So very peculiar circumstances from which we overgeneralized, I think. Well, but I, we should, I think, point, there are some other cases as well, but probably maybe what we should think about is there, if, there, if you don't have your basic checks and balances of an independent judiciary and some other you know, functioning legislature, um, which generally you think of as part of the democracy, you can have some other compensating factors. And some of those, even without the uh, European help, for example, in Mexico, after a similar case to the Yugoslavian case, after a fairly clear fraud, fraudulent count in 1988, then the, civil, the Mexican civil society started to build up. They didn't have the independent judiciary. They didn't have you know, in a legislature to able to counter. But civil society internally started to build up with some international help to pressure for change. Now, granted, that's a much richer case than many of the cases you're talking about in Africa. But in Panama as well, in 1989, clear fraud with General Noriega, and the opposition candidates were even beaten out in the street. But in that case, that required, there, there wasn't enough strength internally, and that required clear international help that eventually came to an invasion uh, to turn that around. So there, there can be some compensating factors, but my point is that sometimes the elections go in steps. And when you participate in the first one, when you have an autocratic situation carrying out elections, an electoral autocrat, then sometimes the first one may clearly not be winnable but they may go in steps, and if the opposition keeps participating and forming, they can win enough change in the rules to open it up, to, to grant that bit of unpredictability so that sometimes they can win, surprising the autocrat in the future. And then it's the question of, have we moved to the point where the autocrat has to accept that surprise loss? Mm. Or uh, you know, has, has the whole situation changed? so that he couldn't possibly not accept it or, or not. And we get into that yeah. situation. We have several cases right now, Ivory Coast and others, that uh, we're involved in, so we'll have that tested. 
Thank you. Ruth. Thanks, thanks a lot for a really interesting discussion. Um, when I saw the title, I thought this could be a real sparring match in the sense that the Carter Center is known as the proponent of elections, and here's this section, of this session on, you know, elections are not enough. Um, but I wonder a little bit if the line of the lamb is, is laid down together a little too easily um, here. And in, in particular, I mean, everyone seems to agree, and I, to some extent, too, too, with Dr. McCoy's comment that elections are necessary but not, not sufficient. Um, but at the same time, there seems to be a little bit of an undertone of, of these nefarious dictators, you know, the bad guys and the white, the guys in the black hats and the white hats, and, and those of us, you know, in the north are sitting with the white hats. And, and given that, that clientage politics are fairly common, if not universal, in many, many systems, I wonder if this kind of typecasting of the negative of the autocratic ruler is a little bit, um, a little bit narrow in the sense that there are clientage politics at the international level, uh, international forces which are complicit with certain kinds of shell elections to have a state on the United Nations, be able to deal with people who may be dictators. The United States as a democracy has dealt with many, many dictators. So as, in terms of trying to break that cycle, I wonder if there's much attention being given to alternatives to election. In other words, the way that clientage politics can be used to have some sort of um, contestable politics in other modes that simply, that don't just simply reproduce the internationally accepted standard, which then can be, you know, that's a, an elected politician with a black hat as opposed to a white hat. But it, it, it's a reinforcing cycle in some ways internationally that condones these results as well as internally. So I'm wondering if there's any more fundamental alternatives and more organic that could be, have been thought about in terms of the electoral process as a whole. Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, I go along with quite a lot of that. But um, um, the, um, uh, as, I, as I said, in, in, in post-conflict context, it seems to me that the vital thing is, 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 is sharing of power. Um, and quite possibly elections really don't have much of a of a role in doing that, they, they, they might work against the sharing of power rather than for it. Um, and, uh, and so devising sort of a politics of power sharing um, may be the, the thing that has to happen. Um, of course, some, um, some autocracies um, still have been both very successful for their populations and manage a degree of accountability. I mean, China um, obviously doesn't have proper elections, anything like. Um, but, um, but I think it would be wrong to say that the Chinese government um, is, 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 is not in any sense accountable to its population. And famously, the Chinese government has said um, that they mustn't let growth rates fall below 8%, um, because any growth rate below 8% would trigger the danger of social unrest, which would, would then be a, be a threat to, to stability. And so it's clear they've got a, a strong sense of, my goodness, we, we, we're disciplined by the need to keep delivering to people in order to prevent social unrest. So there's, there's accountability without elections, just as you can have elections without accountability. Right? Um, so uh, um, now, I happen to think that um, in societies which are, China's kind of got structural features which make accountable autocracy 
uh, more feasible than many other societies. I think where you've got very strong ethnic divisions and where you've got great big honeypots of natural resources, then your chances of accountable autocracy go way, way down. You're much more likely to get plundering autocracy. And so kind of autocracy might not be a very good idea. Um, so there's, 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 then there's no alternative to the, the grim process of trying to make effective democracies. Um. I'd, be, uh, I'd be interested to, to understand uh, how many of the uh, bottom billion uh, countries or indeed sort of post-conflict countries do have any kind of uh, power sharing built into their uh, electoral processes. I mean, as far as I can see. Proportional representation, for example. Yeah, proportional representation or something like that. I mean, it seems to me that that's a, a more common facet in, uh, in Western uh, democracies. Um, but I'd, uh, you know, one small example, I think uh, uh, Northern Ireland, the recent uh, you know, Good Friday Agreement and the, and the peace process that's built from that, um, I, I tried to uh, understand the electoral process uh, that had been agreed as part of the agreement um, and absolutely failed. I mean, I couldn't make hide nor hair of it other than the conclusion that it was designed to produce certain results and the results were that there would be power would be shared, you know, period, no other option, um, unless there was some massive and unpredictable uh, fluctuation in voting patterns. Uh, so that sort of supports the argument that... Um, the power sharing you know, can be institutionalized at least. And indeed, what the elections in Northern Ireland produced um, was, it wasn't quite as extreme as Charles Taylor, but, but were the, Northern Ireland, there were, there, were, there were four political parties, you know, two on one side, two on the other. In each case, there are, there are, there are two parties that were basically um, peace parties and two parties that were violent parties that still contested elections. And what happened once you, once you got to the peace settlement and, and voting uh, was that voters polarized to support the extreme violent parties, which then became not minor parties, but the major parties. Um, so so in each, on each side, it pushed the voters to the extremes. Now, partly that was... I think, oh my God, we've got to keep the violent guys in power because otherwise they'll go back and they'll kill us, right? Um, um, and partly it was that we think that's what the other side's going to do with its voters, so we need to be as extreme as possible to counter that so that any compromise starts from us being as extreme as possible. So, you, so voting actually, I think, pushed... The, the, the Constitution forced power sharing, mm -hmm. but the voting pushed people the other way. You know? mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's not just the, the, the power sharing isn't just a matter of, of rules about voting because I mean, take, um, take that deeply troubled ethnically divided country which is always in the news for mayhem, uh, Switzerland. Right? <laughs> um, uh, and the three Ethnic groups, you know, they don't even speak the same language. Each, each damn ethnic group has its own language, right? French, German, Italian, they, they really don't like each other, you know. And, um, uh, and that's why there's always chaos. There. But actually, the reason there isn't chaos uh, is that the Swiss have faced the fact that they're three different groups. They don't speak to each other because they can't understand each other. 
Um, they don't like each other. They don't trust each other. Um, and so they faced that reality and said, well, let's design a system uh, which doesn't depend upon uh, common identity and mutual love. Right? Common identity and mutual love is the best if you can get it, but, but they recognize it's not on the menu. Um, and so what they do is, is divide up um, public posts according to, to ethnicity. So, so there are, it's hard to believe, but, but this, this, is, you know, this is the most advanced society on earth, but actually all the public sector posts are kind of earmarked according to ethnic groups. So a post comes up, and you know, I remember my, my French-Swiss friend saying, oh, unfortunately, I can't apply to that on its earmark for an Italian-Swiss. You know? um, and uh, that introduces all sorts of inefficiencies, but basically uh, each group knows that it's going to get its share. It's built in to the institutions. It doesn't depend upon turning out to vote. It's built into the rules of how, uh, how the system operates, of how, of how public sector operates. You used to think and that then, worked in Lebanon, but it broke down. Well, I, mean, I, I would say that's an essential uh, point to understand how uh, ethnicity operates in, in, uh, in politics. Your map of the uh, uh, states and nations, um, I think you know, people's primary allegiance is, is, is to their, you know, where they were born, their families, their identity that Jennifer was talking about, uh, you know, typically you know, born in the blood and God-given. You're not going to shift that. And so when you hear, you know, in post-conflict societies, people say, well, what we really need is to build a national identity. Um, I think if you're trying to somehow uh, minimize the, the ethnic identity and develop a greater allegiance to a, a national identity, I think you're destined to, to failure, and the description of the national identity is almost always going to be you know, associated with a, a particular group. You can certainly work at the national level and, and level the playing field. You can remove the symbols that used to uh, connote power of one group over another, and Liberia has a fabulous example. Their national motto is, is the love of liberty brought us here, and this uh, it points to the, the rule of the country by the Americo-Liberians, the slaves who returned, who came from the U.S. to Liberia and ran the state uh, for, for you know, 150 years. But the motto does you know, beg the question, uh, who was here before? Um, you know, the love of liberty brought us here. Well, wait a minute, we were here before you were here. So they, they just remove, brought us here and say, with the love of liberty, and, and you know, everybody's happy. Those things can be done. But if you try to say, you're no longer, you know, being a, a crewman is no longer uh, central. Uh, you, you have to be a Liberian man, and being a crew man is a bad thing to be, and it's retrograde. You sort of get into this, uh, and that's what is happening in Rwanda, where they really say, we don't talk about Tutsis, we don't talk about Hutu, we talk about Rwandans. You get into, you know, the Soviet Union would downplay these ethnic identities, and, uh, and as soon as the lid was off, everybody rushed back to, you know, to create the, their own uh, uh, nation states, or however we describe them. So I, th I think it's very... You know, important uh, maybe, point. Maybe a good time to take a, a question from over here, Olivia. Um, hello, my name is Olivia, uh, and I was born and raised in Burundi, left Burundi in '94 as a result of, you know, the civil war. That to me is the result of the election that was held in Burundi. Um, 
you know, a lot of this election language is really Chinese to me. All I know is that the election has, has destroyed a country that was very dear to me. And uh, when I say that, a lot of the, my colleagues, because I work here at the Carter Center, are kind of offended. But I think, I think it's time for any observers or whoever organizes an election to kind of listen not only to the politicians, but to the people, to the business owners. Because what I saw, I mean, I was working at the U.S. Embassy. I was granted a special immigrant visa by the U.S. government, and that's why I'm here. But it was heartbreaking to see how this the country being destroyed. And of course, the observer didn't have the intent to, to say, okay, we want this, this, this genocide happening as a result of the election. But I think, you know, all those international powers, they were there. I mean, I was working at the embassy, and I remember and I, at that time, I even didn't know or didn't dream that I would ever be immigrating to this country. But I, the National Democratic Institute was the, 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 the observers. And I don't think the U.S. Embassy was involved, but they were there. I'm a financial analyst, so they were coming and getting their money. And I remember telling them, because my Tutsi colleagues and my other Burundian friends, they were crying. And those are the things observers don't see. They were crying. And the first time, the Indian community we have, you know, just don't interfere in things that goes on in the country. But then you see this dark cloud that the observers don't see from the international community because they come there with, you know, with their money. They are there prepared to evacuate in a, you know, in a week. And that's what happened when the, the first president elected was killed three months after he was elected. In a week, the Americans came, evacuated all the non-essential employees. The, the, the Germans did the same, the French soldiers did the same for their citizens. And what are we going to do? So we see everybody leave when everybody's killing around. You know, so I'm, I'm just here because I'm crying. And I went back home last November, and the country was paradise before the election. There was, it was a kingdom up to 1966. From 1966 to 1976, you know, it became a republic and, you know, someone took over through military coup. And then there was another military coup. Well, there we was better not get into too much of a history so, here. So, I'm sorry? We better not get into too much history here. It's an important well, case. Well, I was born, I was born there. Well, that's, I, I that's, understand that's, they're going to have an election now. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. You know, and they're having another election in August. But it, it I mean, this election, the, I, I remember when I went back home uh, in 95, I, I, I came, I, I arrived here in 94, and I was supposed to, you know, go see my, my father, who was sick. A week, you know, before he passed away, I had my ticket. But there was this economic embargo, and there was all this chaos. I just couldn't even go and, you know, see my father. He, he passed away without me being there. And it's, it's all, I mean, I, I feel that it, there's so many things that this election messed up. You know, I'm sorry to be so emotional, but that is my country. I have, it's always going to be my native Burundi, and it has been messed up. Otherwise, I would not even be here, you know? And I go now, things are still not okay. And nobody is there to, you know, the international community that, you know, kind of imposes the, the system. Is, is not really doing much. You see a lot of NGOs there, and they really don't know what, what to do because they have not been, they have not known poverty. They have not known misery. So 
There is no way they know how to help. You know, they want to do something, and you well, see Olivia, the Olivia, we, we, we do have so to get on to other, you other know, I'm sorry, but questions. You know. I understand. I don't know if you have any comments, David, or? No, I think that her description is illustrating the whole theme, that yep. uh, elections are not enough, and it's, it's a very, very complicated set of problems yes. that requires long-term engagement. I mean. And that they can be dangerous. If sure. If, if there is not the long-term engagement. If there's not the long, yeah. If the internationals just leave immediately without any follow-up. We're getting a little late, so please keep the questions brief. Sure. Um, so, so my question is actually kind of related to that. And I'm, I'm interested in going back to this question of um, elections as a legitimating and stabilizing force and also electoral observation um, having a legitimizing function. Um, I'm thinking of the case of the DRC in the 2006 elections. Um, and and how, how do you avoid legitimating the wrong thing? Um, the DRC elections, you know, were seen as this incredibly important part of the peace process. They were delayed and delayed and delayed and they finally get around to it. The donors who paid for this, I mean, almost saw the outcome as a foregone conclusion. I don't, I don't think anybody who seriously observes the place would, would dispute that. Kabila was going to win. We had to have an election to make Kabila the legitimate ruler of the country, and then we would move on. There would be some power sharing and those sorts of things, and, and that's exactly what happened, but the problem was um, the elections legitimated a bunch of war criminals um, and gave them, you know, kind of you've spread around the opportunity to steal from the state um, to maybe more people from more ethnic groups. Um, so how do you avoid um, putting the stamp of legitimacy on, on situations that may actually make things worse, because of course you've had an incredible loss of confidence um, among the Congolese people in the democratic process and the value of the rule of law and democracy. They, they sort of see these elections as a failure that didn't change anything, and you know, if you're in the Kivus, actually life has gotten much worse um, since 2006, so. Yeah. Well, I, I think the DRC election, that 2006 DRC election, was for the international community, not for the Congolese. Um, and, and why did the international community want an election? It wanted an exit strategy for the peacekeepers, bring the boys home. Uh, and the, the, the evidence for that is that um, the, the, the DRC elections were held on October the 29th, 2006. And the date penciled in for the withdrawal of all peacekeepers was October the 30th, 2006. I'd done a statistical analysis of what's the effect of post-conflict elections on violence. And I found that in the year before the election, the risk of violence does go down quite a lot. But in the year after the election, it goes up a lot. And it goes up more than it goes down. So the net effect of the election is to increase danger. Um, but if that's the pattern, the year before the election, risks go down. The year after, they go up a lot. If you use the election as a milestone for troop withdrawal, for peacekeeper withdrawal, you get it precisely wrong, right? The election is not a milestone, it's a tombstone. Right? So I very much agree with you on that. Although the UN forces are still in the Congo and the Carter Center is in the Congo in part because the UN forces are providing security. If Kabila wants them out, then we'll have to face that. The, the, the reason that, what well, of course, the decision to withdraw was never implemented because violence immediately blew up. And so in, indeed, the peacekeepers found themselves uh, being flown in, not flown out, right? And so reality eventually uh, came home to roost. But, um, but as we say, the price of that was legitimating 
uh, a regime that really had no business being legitimated. <coughs> yeah, um, actually, I have an observation in a question, but I'll just ask the question. Um, the, um, and, and Paul kind of hinted at this, is um, when we've been talking about donors, we mainly, I, it's been assumed that we're talking about northern countries, European and U.S., but we, we know that China is a major, major donor in Africa now and that you know, we've seen in Zimbabwe and now in Kenya major, major infrastructure uh, investments and, and, and so on. And, and, and just sort of you know, in what way you know, anyone up there, and, and especially you, Paul, that would be interested in the relationship between democracy and economic growth, um, what role do you see that in terms of being a major player in terms of elections, democracy, support for elected autocrats, as you say, and, and, and so on? Yeah. I mean the, um the Chinese are not generally imposing conditions that uh, democratic elections have to be held as, 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 uh, in return for their money. Um, the, um, um, the sort of deals they're typically doing is resource extraction in return for infrastructure. Um, and that's a, it, it's a two-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, it's, um, it's healthy to get some, a major competitor in there for these resources. Uh, that's why the price has gone up instead of just being locked up by the, the big Western resource extraction companies. So, so that's healthy. Um, what's unhealthy at the moment is that China's going in, in in situations which are just so manifestly illegitimate that, it, that it's shocking. I mean, the, the most shaming one recently was Guinea, where you get a, a, a coup, um, a, uh, what, a young army, army captain or something comes in, um, zero legitimacy, the African Union refuses to recognize him. Um, the citizens of Guinea uh, rise up in protest and he shoots dead 157 of them. And within two weeks of that, um, the Chinese come in and do a $7 billion resource extraction deal. This is in an economy which is only worth $3 billion. So this was, this was truly, truly shaming. Um, and that sort of practice, of course, reinforces the worst. So uh, it's, uh, it's a vital matter to try and get some um, uh, uh, international standards um, that would preclude that. Now, it doesn't, you know, we, we, we can stop way short of, of requiring elections before we, uh, most, most standards of, uh, that anybody could possibly agree to would exclude that situation in Guinea, right? So it's the absence of any agreed standards that's the killer at the moment, um, rather than the standards being too low. They just are no standards. So the challenge is to try and engage with China on, on some sort of reasonable standards. I realize we have a couple of more questioners, but I really am afraid I have to beg your apologies because I apologize to you. Uh, our time really is uh, exhausted and Paul has agreed very generously to stay an extra half an hour and to sign books outside. And I have one brief announcement to make and a, a, a final thank you. So. Um, uh, we better cut off the questioning at, at, at this point. Um, 
it was really very generous of you to be with us this evening. Our next conversation at the Carter Center will focus on improving the lives of women through public health initiatives. It will take place on April 22nd, but it will be webcast only, and you can read more about that event uh, on the, at the Connor Conversation series on our, on our website. And you can, as I said earlier, if you wish to add the question that you haven't answered, please blog it to us at the same website. Uh, I guess my only final thought in thanking my colleagues on the panel here and you for being here is I often say that the only place we're really equals in the eyes of God and in the ballot box, and I think both the Carter Center and I know Paul Collier believe in the inherent equality of all people. What separates us is inequality of opportunities and our own personal strengths and weaknesses. The countries that he's focused on, the Carter Center focuses on, the, the lack of opportunity has been the huge impediment. I hope this conversation tonight has given you some idea of where we locate our intervention in terms of when we're invited in to do elections and that maybe elections can be seen as part of a process of moving the accountability equation forward for our own collective good because the lives and the health and well-being of people in even the most disadvantaged countries of the world are again part of our fellow humanity and we're all in the same boat so thank you all for coming very very much it's been a wonderful evening to get together and to hear from such wonderful people so please join me in applauding them This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.